topics to cover today. Abs, <laughs> shrooms, <laughs> violence, um, yes. incest. Okay, let me write them all down. <laughs> Betrayal. <laughs> I will avenge you, father. I will save you, mother. I will kill you, Fiona. Have you been practicing? No, I haven't. I hadn't even said it yet. I've just been, it's just been playing in my head on repeat. <laughs> I read Simon Crow's very good review of this. And he said that Hamlet is played by Alexander Skarsgård and Carbohydrates. <laughs> <laughs> Not wrong. He seems to have like discovered another muscle that no one else has in the history of humanity between your shoulders and your neck. He's like, like added on some sort of growth there. The way he carries himself, the physical performances, I mean, all across the board, but especially from him in this movie are incredible. Yeah. The screening I went to was like an early one and he came and did like a little Q and a at the end. Wait, who did Alex, Alex Skarsgård. <laughs> Okay. Which is very cool. But in real life, he was in just like black hoodie, black pants. But he looked like a normal guy. I'm sure that he was on some crazy diet for this. Yeah, but yeah. he just looked like a normal. He was very tall. Uh-huh. He was very tall. And he was obviously like handsome and charming. But I wouldn't have necessarily like pictured him as a Viking beast if I had like passed him on the street. Yeah. Okay. Fresh out the oven, it's Cinema Bums. I'm Wade. And I'm, <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I'd come up with something better for this. All right, screw it. I'm Emmett. Cinema Bubs is a podcast where we watch through every single movie and popular film franchises, one each week to try and track how the storytelling changes over time. Today, we are concluding our miniseries, The Bum House, covering every film directed by Robert Eggers, as well as returning to our miniseries, Can You Feel the Bums Tonight, covering every film in the Lion King franchise. Not only that, but we're also going <laughs> back into the Shakespeare corner. Uh, <laughs> we are. And it's just going to get weird. It's just going to be wild. Just as dust was beginning to cover the Shakespeare corner, we have once again unearthed it. We're going to fully spoil today's film, The Northmen. Emmett, how are you doing? I am doing surprisingly well for somebody who has had the last 48 hours that I have had, um, which included oh, okay. driving four hours to go and watch this movie and catching the midnight <laughs> ferry home and then staying up until three in the morning, just sitting in my bed and like thinking about this movie and just like being like Ooh. kind of in like a s- stress response to mm. this movie, but just like sitting there in bed and trying to sleep and not being able to. So interesting <laughs> to say the least, but good. How are you? I'm good. I was similarly lost after I saw this movie. I texted you <laughs> about 30 minutes after I'd seen it as I was trying to take the train home. I was like, I don't know how to process what I have seen. I am not sure what my feelings about any of this are. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we are talking today about The Northman, the third film directed by Robert Eggers, co-written by him and shown the Icelandic poet who has a longstanding partnership with Bjork, who appears in this film and also wrote last year's A24 horror movie Lamb. Hmm. I did not see that one, but I'd heard of it and I was interested. Yeah, same. Their screenplay is based on 
The Legend of Prince Amleth. This is a 10th century Scandinavian legend, which was transcribed by the Danish historian Saxo Grammaticus Mm -hmm. in his Gesta Denorum series. How was that? I feel like that (laughs) you definitely got the name right. Saxo Grammaticus is like one of those guys. He's one of the famous people that that Shakespeare was always pillaging plots from. This is the inspiration, or not the movie, obviously, but this is based on the legend that inspired Hamlet, which then in turn inspired The Lion King, four of the five movies in the Lion King series, which we recently covered. Which, in turn, The Lion King leaves deep marks on this movie, yes. so it all like comes back around in this crazy, in this crazy, crazy sort of way. I was also really reminded of another movie that I watched, I would say, when I was a sophomore or junior in high school. I cannot remember its name at this time, but it involved a group of Vikings landing somewhere in North America, on the North American continent. Basically, a war between Vikings and indigenous American people. Whoa. Which was a totally dope and crazy movie that had like some serious similarities to this in just like putting you in that world and like not apologizing for anything and just like it's brutal both sides. There's not really any, there's no good guys. It's just like here's two groups of people killing each other and like that's kind of entertaining. Also, a movie that like kind of plays with your perception of like space and time in interesting, interesting ways. That sounds really cool. We'll try and do a search later and figure out what the name was. Yeah, I feel like by pushing the story back even further to its original setting, Mm -hmm. you can kind of overcome the barrier, even though it is really shocking that like these cultures do not sort of ascribe to our morals in our modern society. You know, like the things that they do are not bound in the same way uh they would be today you know yeah not even close (laughs) and i feel like that is a leap that people have a harder time with shakespeare stuff Mm. well because we see it so often in modernized versions where the language stays Mm. the same but we put it in like you know the 90s with the romeo and juliet or the 60s or 70s with that uh great scottish play that patrick stewart did Mm -hmm. Or stuff like that, where it's like much more modern era. And so you're trying to reconcile that archaic language with a modern era. I think you do just naturally put our moral viewpoint on it. Plus, Shakespeare and the early, like the Elizabethans are the beginning of modern thought. So in a big way, Mm. you know, like modern Western culture thought kind of grows out of, in some ways, stuff that was happening in Europe and the Renaissance and than later in like the Elizabethan period. So that's a really good point of like, he is writing often about those older cultures from the very beginning of the modern viewpoint. And this really just takes it back and is like, no, you are in it. All of these people ascribe to these values and there's, we're not going to judge them on that. You cannot possibly judge any of these characters by a standard that you would judge people in your life by. It also doesn't make the hero like above his surroundings. You know, because like how many historical movies do you see where it's about like the one good German who's like, no, World War Two is bad or even (laughs) further, just like people in more barbaric sort of time periods who Mm -hmm. are like trying to live a civilized life. You know, like it doesn't bother with that. It is 
in that time period and so are all the characters. Yeah. The score for this, which I thought was quite wonderful, was written by Robin Carolan and Sebastian Gainsborough. They're better known as uh, the recording artist Vessel, under which they have recorded several albums, but this is their first score for a Hmm. film. It runs two hours and 17 minutes, 30 minutes longer than The Lighthouse, and almost an entire hour longer than The Witch. Unlike The Lighthouse, where you're kind of like, this is a timeless movie. Mm -hmm. This movie is somewhat about duration. True. It is like about how long. And I mean, not necessarily about how long it is, but like that feels like part of the cumulative effect of this film has to do with has to do with that in some way. Mm -hmm. I do feel like it is the slowest of all of his movies. Definitely the only one where I was like, Mm -hmm. where is this like, where is this going when, you know? Right. But that may have had more to do with the fact that I'm coming to it with a preconceived notion of plot points needing to be hit from the story of Hamlet. So I don't know. So there's, you know, there's a little bit of that, too. It also, for me, is the only one that doesn't have sort of a hinge point twist. Like there Mm -hmm. isn't a turn that reshapes what you've seen and sort of re-energizes the movie. I think there maybe would be... Again, okay, full spoilers for people who don't know Hamlet. The Nicole Kidman turn would be like that sort of moment that's the same as the killing the goal in The Lighthouse or oh yeah, Black Phillip in The Witch. Mm-hmm. And I did love that stuff, but knowing Hamlet like from Nicole Kidman's first line, like literally when he, yes, when he yeah, as yeah. a kid runs into a room and she's like, never enter my room without asking. I was like, oh, well, because she's sleeping with the uncle. Yeah. She's a nun, the whole thing. Yeah. It's much more of a straightforward narrative, too, mm-hmm. than his other films. Also, you know, I love the old Joseph Campbell stuff. It is mm-hmm. like almost a beat for beat version of the cycle, like the hero cycle. Yeah. I'm sure that's weighing heavily on his mind. Beowulf is weighing heavily on his mind, Mm. I'm sure. And like visually, it looks a lot like Lord of the Rings sometimes. Yeah. Also, it reminded me of the Brian, uh, the Brian Jakes Redwall books, which also all follow a very formulaic sort of like banishment tasks, get the sword, find the bad guy. Mm -hmm. Like the passage into the underworld is a big thing about the idea of like going into the underworlds and fighting an unearthly monster to get the weapon that will that is a magic weapon. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's what Luke does when he goes into the cave of the dark side of the force on Dagobah. And that's what Paul Atreides does when he undergoes the spice agony in Dune, which also big Dune connection here is the psychedelic angle and like the oh, spice uh-huh. agony as uh, as like a psychedelic kind of disinhibiting stimulus to open you into something else. For them, it's not uh, being able to see the future. It's actually uh, being able to fight like crazy monsters or alternatively use that, you know, like using that against their enemies in interesting ways. So there's a thread through all these movies about psychotropic substances that have a profound effect on all of the characters of all three movies. So you've got the rotten corn, which produces a mold known as ergot, which is what um, LSD is basically was basically formed out of originally Hmm. in the lighthouse. There's the rotten gross water that they find there's been a gull in, which could have been poisoning their minds somehow. And then they start drinking friggin' 
kerosene and you know like that might not be psychedelic but it certainly like screws with your head yeah 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 and then in this it's magic mushrooms and other sort of psychedelic substances that anya is able to fix up yeah and i read that that was actually for a long time the historical thought about the berserker Uh vikings was that they would use hallucinogenic drugs to get into a place where they would sort of think they were animals Mm -hmm. but then modern historians were more like no they probably couldn't actually do all the things they did if they were actually on drugs and i think that the hype up disassociative dance they do in this Uh is like more of a modern school of thought Mm -hmm. of what they might have done to tap into that stuff yeah true but you do have it you've got it as you said with Anya poisoning the village here, but mm-hmm. then you've also got it with the druggy coming of age sequence at the beginning mm-hmm. where the dad and the son are both like lapping up mm-hmm. like mushrooms and bones of mm-hmm. something that's mm-hmm. died mm-hmm. and then having like a hallucinatory family rights sort of scene. So, which is like similar to the spice agony in Dune. I mean, there's this whole thing where like the psychedelic experience is not a one to one, but is like kind of similar to the hero's journey of the cycle of return. And like the feeling of like the idea of like ego death, like when you do so much of a substance that you like feel like you don't exist, like you cease to exist and then you come Mm. back. That is like, you know, what do you call it? Uh, A microcosm of that eternal return thing that the hero's myth is based around too. And I think he sees it that way because he gets all of the information that will lead him on his path throughout this movie, like basically from that moment too. Mm -hmm. I saw this like a week ago now. So I went to see it for a second time yesterday, which I was glad of in part because I feel like whenever I see an Eggers movie or an Astro movie, I'm like metaphorically watching it with my hands behind my eyes a little little bit, my eyes behind my hands. I'm kind of like the whole movie asking like, where is this going to go? And like, how far is it going to go? Mm -hmm. But watching it a second time, like it's all there from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Like, obviously, it does sort of start with, like, an actual prologue by mm-hmm. one of the prophets telling you, like, what is going to happen in the movie. But then, like, the first vision that uh, I think it's when he's adult, adult Hamlet has, is you see every single thing that will happen in the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Speaking of Joseph Campbell and all that stuff, I thought about that a lot too. I did also think about the Lord of the Rings, less so the Tolkien books, but more the Peter Jackson movies. Yeah. And like the horror director sensibility on some sort Mm. of mythic, you know, epic. But what I think is like really cool about this is that there is then like a second refusal of the call towards the end of the movie. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. And that is like the closest thing it comes to sort of modern morals or what a modern take on this story would be where he like chooses to let go of it Uh rather than pursue it until he is killed. Yeah. And you have like this 10 minute sequence that makes refusing to call look cooler than it ever has anywhere. This was the Northmen released just last weekend as we're recording this April 22nd. 2022 by Focus Features in the United States. It's Robert Eggers' first movie for a major studio, not for A24. 
along with that, it had a budget of $90 million, which is up from The Witch and The Lighthouse budget of $4 million. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) The initial budget for this was 65. Feels a little more closer to what is on screen. Uh And then it sort of ballooned with like COVID costs and uh production stops and all of that stuff. Yeah. But it it has done actually pretty decently for an R-rated Viking hyper-violent saga movie. Uh, It has made $23 million back so far, 12 million of which were from the first weekend. And it has gotten very good reviews. This is pretty crazy. It got an 83 on Metacritic, which is the exact same score as The Witch in the Lighthouse. Whoa. Every single one of Edgar's movies coming in at the exact same score. Wow. Gotta love that kind of consistency. You you wonder if if he's just like working so hard behind the scenes being like, we gotta get to 84. This will be the one that'll get me to 84. That's so funny. Emmett, I'm not going to ask you to explain this story for a fifth time after all of the Lion King recaps, but I will ask you flop or bop to the Northman. It is a bop for sure. It's all there. Rafiki has never been better than Bjork. <laughs> than Bjork and Willem Dafoe and that oh, other yeah. weird dude in a uh-huh. cave. Which is like, how? where was... That guy was just in a cave in Iceland somehow. And <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know about that guy. <laughs> the thing to me about this movie... Okay, here's what I really, really loved above everything else. Story-wise, honestly... It is. It's so straightforward. It's so just like it is so like boom, 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 boom. But visually and the world that is built, the visuals, beautiful, but the world itself feels completely real. It feels like this whole own other weird thing that feels both realistic, like it could have actually happened and also so horrifically different from our (laughs) own time. Uh-huh. That like the horror here comes not from any one thing that happened, but as like a an accumulation of events. I am so glad that I live in the 2020s and not in the 900s. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Like I know there's a bunch of bad stuff happening right now. Not as bad as that. So, (laughs) so like, you know, take, take the wins where you can. Uh, (laughs) Wade flopper, Bob, a bop for me too. I really like this movie as watching it the first time. And after seeing it, I was sort of gestating wildly between it being like a seven and it being like a nine Mm. out of Mm -hmm. 10, Mm -hmm. because I do think that it is like a very basic story. Uh Uh-huh. But then I think a lot of it is really well executed. But then I think there is some like tonal mismatching at points. Mm. But is that part of the historical accuracy that is like his whole thing, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like I went back and forth a lot, but I ended up on a place where I really like it, especially the epic mythic sort of elements of it. Mm -hmm. It reminded me a lot of Dune, which you mentioned, but specifically in like, Denny sort of setting out to keep like what makes his movies unique, but translate it into sort of like a big blockbuster, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. This to me feels like probably the closest we will ever get to a Robert Eggers like 
blockbuster, summer sure. blockbuster, you know? Yeah. And I felt like he was sort of like still very much playing by his rules of how he makes these movies, mm-hmm. but also trying to have it appeal more widely. Yeah. If he succeeded, we can discuss. But I do think that that is like what we are seeing on screen, you know? Mm-hmm. I am not sure about its wide appeal. Yeah, so I will, say, <laughs> I will say the first time I saw this, I saw it with a lot of old people. Oh. It was at like an arts an art center, basically. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And it was an early showing they were doing a talk back. So I think like that is part of it. Like it was mm-hmm. a lot of community members. Right. I also think they have mostly marketed this movie as like Nicole Kidman Viking movie interesting like my mom was talking about wanting to see this movie because she likes nicole kidman Uh uh-huh and then i when i watched this movie i was like i don't know if my mom would like this (laughs) yeah it doesn't feel like her thing so there were a lot of old people and i don't know maybe also just like the 60 and up movie going population is just like it's not a marvel movie i'll see it yeah (laughs) maybe that is the vibe right now sure but I would say that I like heard them turning against this movie in real time oh. in the second half. Oh, for real? <laughs> However, I will say the second time I saw it was with a much smaller crowd, and that was sort of like a dead audience. And then I was like, oh, the first time felt like a much more vocal audience, like a movie that was really on this movie's wavelength. Uh-huh. An audience that was really like vibing with everything the movie was giving just maybe weren't prepared for how intense it was going to be. Yeah. Well, and that is, and that is the thing about this movie is like, yeah, like you said about the, like watching it kind of like through your fingers. Mm-hmm. One of the things that makes the world feel real is there's just constantly crazy stuff happening in the backgrounds of shots. Like there's just oh, awful, yeah. crazy, horrible things happening all the time. And that's not even like the main focus of what the shot is, but you'll just like see people getting murdered like scads of them in the background of a shot. The focus is on some other, on whatever Alexander's doing. But I mean, in like the funeral scene, like that girl gets stabbed, but it's like, it's basically put into the background of the shot and you can like, you know, it's coming, but when they go to do it, it's like the focus has already shifted to something else, but it just makes it feel real because it's like, Oh, we're not focusing in on each very dramatic kill and very, you know, like moment. That stuff is just part of how this world operates, mm-hmm. which was one of my like really big takeaways from it. And yeah, it is. It's just like always like what the hell could be next? Because early on, you see like so much weird, crazy, horrible stuff like the guy with the nose like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even in that very first opening scene where Ethan Hawke is coming back from war and you're seeing it through the eyes of his son being so excited that his father is coming home. Mm-hmm. And you see like him triumphantly ride into the town square, followed by his brother on the horseback. And then like behind them is a slave gang, you know, like a bunch of female slaves who are all chained together having to follow them through the square. Yeah. We're not focusing on that, but like that is the world we are in, you know? Yeah. I will say the missing link for me here is that I have never seen Game of Thrones, which I know is more R-rated fantasy. So I was kind of wondering, like, I know how big that was. Like our general audience is more tuned into that sort of thing. Oh, interesting. That's Then I am having not seen that, you know? I also haven't seen that. 
or I've only seen one season of that. But my feeling on Game of Thrones is that it is basically a soap opera with dragons. Mm -hmm. It is not based in any sort of reality other than as much sex and as much violence as possible, where this has both of those things and has a lot of them because that is what these people were like, not because like, oh, it's got to be like raunchy for HBO. Yeah. You know, that's just my opinion after seeing like one and a half seasons of Game of Thrones. So please at me about it. I would love to hear your takes about why Game of Thrones is good, actually. But, you know, it mm-hmm. probably won't convince me to read it. <laughs> it at least never lingers on those things to me, mm-hmm. which isn't to say that it isn't gratuitous, but like all of it is quick, you know? Yeah. Like, you see some really horrible, hyper-violent things, but, like, the camera does not stay on it. And even, like, the sex scenes, the quote-unquote sex scenes, of mm-hmm. which there are maybe two or three, is really just, like, a very quick shot of, like, our characters' butts. Yeah. And for, like, literally two seconds, and then they cut away, you know? Yeah. Like, that happens a few times. So it doesn't feel like you're ever lingering in those things, even though they are there. Mm-hmm. there's no like full frontal nudity or anything like that i feel like it's like all fairly tasteful and plot driven yeah which is interesting not something yeah. that i always feel about game of thrones i also read that this time period was very taboo about nudity really? and uh pretty prudent so it said that like the fact that vikings were shirtless that was like very shocking that was like an intimidation um... tactic and even at the end, when the final battle is them like completely naked, that would be like the most upsetting, disorienting thing to your opponent, basically. Uh, okay. Because actually, like sex and nudity were like very rarely seen in public at all during mm-hmm. this time period. Okay. Well, you said we would talk about the violence, and I guess we have covered it a lot here. But I do. Is there anything else we want to say before we get into like the deeper elements on like? Sort of the unholy mix in this, I feel like, of like Lord of the Rings mixed with Midsommar, basically. It is. I mean, and that is basically what it is. The deal with Tolkien is that he was interested in all of that history and stuff, but it seems to me like a little squeamish. Some of his other books that aren't the Lord of the Rings, like some of his other like legends that like append to the Lord of the Rings are a little bit darker and draw more from this kind of Norse mythology sort of stuff. But I mean, like Aragorn and Frodo as as a kind of like joint Jesus figure, it's very influenced by Christian morality and mm-hmm. it's very influenced by his like very black and white sort of view of World War One, you know, and so it it has a lot of other stuff layered on top of it other than trying to be a historically or representative of the Norse mythology that he drew on. Right. And Ari Aster is like, hey, these people used to do some messed up stuff. Let's like, (laughs) let's dial that just all the way up. And this movie finds what I think is probably closer to reality. Yeah. And is like, yes, it was a brutal time. But in Midsommar, it's a brute. It's like a more brutal time confronting the modern uh, viewpoint. But with this, there is no modern viewpoint. The only modern viewpoint is the viewer. So there is no one who has a morality other than the morality of the time, which seems to be honor, kill or be killed, revenge. I don't know much what else. I do think that like 
fans of either will probably come up with not quite enough to satisfy Mm. their hunger. Mm -hmm. You know, like fans of Dune and the Lord of the Rings who are looking for an epic fantasy Mm -hmm. will probably enjoy this but be turned off by the hyperviolence. And then like horror fans, elevated horror fans, Tarantino fans will probably not find that it like it doesn't rejoice in that stuff enough mm-hmm. to be like truly shocking or disturbing. I don't know. I feel like the part where the, where he puts the sword right through the guy's face very slowly was pretty, yeah. that was, yeah. and it's like well-deserved and you've like seen that guy throughout the movie. And it's like, you know, his, his revenge is coming on that guy eventually, but it is still pretty awful when it happens. For me, everything in like the first half of the movie, I thought was actually a little bit less violent than I was expecting. Some of it is bad, but it felt to me sort of like an R-rated war film, Mm -hmm. a really violent war film. Mm -hmm. But then once you get into the Nightblade stuff, specifically when they have that like Annihilation-esque wall of body parts. Yeah. That to me is where I was like, oh, this is too much. And then from there on out, it kept getting worse and worse. (laughs) Yeah. The only other thing I'll say about this, because we probably do need to move on. There are two like long take fight scenes in this Mm -hmm. where you're like really following Alex through like a big group of people. There's him taking the village at the beginning. Oh, my God. So cool. When he comes back to save Olga and like all of uh, Volnir's men come and attack him at once. Mm-hmm. And neither of those like totally worked for me. Mm. They felt very stage combat-y. Mm. Uh, and maybe that is also because I think through that lens a lot of the time of like, yeah. how would I stage this? But I also think it's because... Eggers is like keeping the camera flat in a way that we don't normally see during fight scenes. Mm. When you have these really long, elaborate set pieces, I don't know. I could just tell like how hard they were trying to hit their marks and how like every single sort of blow is across the same uh, plane Mm -hmm. perpendicular to the camera. Oh yeah. So like personally, neither of those really did it for me. They both felt a little bit. See, to me, the one that felt stage combat-y was the final battle. Oh, see, for me, the one-on-one battles, the final one, and especially the Nightblade one, which I want to talk about soon, both really worked. I loved the Nightblade one. Let's just talk about it. What do you want to say about it? (laughs) Well, that, to me, is maybe the best moment in the movie. Uh Uh-huh. That's one of, like, a group of scenes that I think are, like, totally perfectly done. That also felt very Peter Jackson to me. Mm. And also felt very Zelda. Like that to me was like him getting the Master Sword. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know what else? It reminded me of the Green Knight too. Yeah. It yeah. was similar similar vibe there as well, which makes sense. It's Those are all based off of a similar set of myths. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that scene is so cool. And it's, I don't know if it's super clear, but they're in a boat that is underground. They're like on the hull of a boat. I'm pretty sure because they used to bury Vikings like on their ships. 
Mm-hmm. And I believe that he's they're like on a boat underground, which is just a totally cool and creepy thing. And that the Barrow Whites, which are creatures in Lord of the Rings in the books, but not in the movies, are these creatures very much like that guy. People who were buried with their horde underneath these big mounds. And if you were to go and disturb the mound, then the Barrow White would come alive and try and kill you. Right. Which happens to Frodo and company in the early part of Fellowship, I think. So I knew that Norse mythology, like Greek mythology, has like a ton of different gods. Uh But I didn't realize that at the time you would like pick which one you would worship Mm. specifically. Mm -hmm. Like you would pick which one was sort of your god. And there Uh was a lot of rivalry between the different ones, Uh which is going on in this movie because Amlet is raised by his father to worship Odin, Mm -hmm. who is the king god. His father is the king. So that makes sense. Mm But then Fulnir is worshiping Freyr. Freya, who is the mother of, who is the, like the wife of Odin and the mother of the gods, I believe. Yes, and is like a god of the earth. Uh-huh. When you see the Viking funeral they're mm-hmm. doing for the son, where they kill the woman, that was a real thing that happened, by the way, too. They're in a ship that is on the ground because they are worshiping the earth god. So it is like taking place inside a ship, but the ship is not out to sea uh-huh it is like based on the earth because yeah. that's the god they worship which was really interesting yeah i feel like this does a little bit better job with norse mythology than thor no shade to taika uh-huh. and it also resists the temptation to play any led zeppelin which i think for this movie is the correct choice uh <laughs> didn't stop me from thinking about led zeppelin <laughs> a few times throughout this movie. i i did like I did like when it got to the final battle, I was like, wouldn't it be crazy? <laughs> like, wouldn't it just be nuts? Yeah. If he dropped it, if he just <laughs> just dropped it right now. Like, but I will say I did like recognize from some things from Thor. Oh, yeah. You know, when they're talking about Fenrir, mm-hmm. when the Vikings are. Yeah, yeah. And I think there is even a reference to Thor and obviously all the Odin stuff. Yeah. Like, I did catch up on some things just from us having watched those. And I believe that Olga worships different Earth gods because she is Russian or Ukrainian, yes. possibly. She's yeah. up the Rus, up the river somewhere. And they are in the land of the Rus, which I believe is what is today Russia. But could mean also like Finland, Norway or Sweden as well. I was trying to research the geographical stuff and it was very complicated. <laughs> yeah, He at one point says that he has friends in Orkney, which is in the Scottish, uh, is in the Scottish Isles. And they go to Iceland, which is way out west of all of that, basically, Uh all of Northern Europe. Iceland's like way out in the middle there. But it's not clear where they are at the beginning, like where his father's kingdom is. Yeah. I definitely thought this movie was going to bring us back to his father's kingdom at some point. Never does. Yeah. Well, I think that's also part of like our Hamlet expectations is when they mention that the king of Norway has taken his his dad's uh, kingdom. Yeah. That sounds familiar. They definitely do that later in the Nicole Kidman scene where there is like the dais that you are expecting someone to be behind like Polonius is behind oh, in yeah. Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And you're just thinking that the whole time and there never is anyone, but he keeps like checking behind it. Yeah. Yeah, the kingdom is a fictional island. I believe it is pronounced Hepsa or something close to that in the movie. 
but I read that it is supposed to be off the coast of Scotland. Okay. Okay. Yeah, as you said, they go east, which I believe is from Alex Skarsgård's suggestion, which is that most Viking stuff has them going west to England and like pillaging there. Oh, interesting. And they were like, what if they go the other way and we see something different? Hmm. That stuff is all really wild. Like the different cultures on display. And one of the things that I think this movie gets right in a really cool way I think that we often study history in very localized sorts of ways. We're like, there were the Vikings, they were over here. There was the English, they were doing their thing. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the ancient world was almost as connected as the world is today. Mm -hmm. There was a global economy already in 895, involved slave trade from Scotland to Constantinople. That's, I don't even know how many thousands of miles. That's a huge distance. That's all the way across all of Europe. I mean, for them to be interconnected in that way, that goes, I'm, and I'm sure that like goes down the Nile, goes into Egypt and all of that. I don't, I don't know all of the dates on all that stuff, but it is like crazy just to think about all of these different cultures that are like kind of aware of each other, sometimes fighting each other, sometimes, uh, sometimes in commerce with each other, but all existing at the same time in what seems like very differing degrees of modernity. You know, yeah. I just think that's interesting. I read someone recently that said that you could have had cowboys, samurai and pirates were all around for like a few years of overlapping about how we think about like these segmented histories. But a lot uh-huh. of it is going on at the same time, you know? Yeah. Which was pretty wild to me. That was cool. Well, now we need to do a pirate samurai Western, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. How about the scene where they play rugby or oh, some like other hockey or something? Yeah. And they just straight up kill people. They just like <laughs> literally I think those guys are dead on the side of the field. Yeah. And he definitely kills that guy by headbutting his skull in. Yes, <laughs> that was insane. <laughs> the vicious headbutt yeah i love that scene that is where part of where the movie really like unlocked for me and i was like oh i get it that scene is also i want to say like the lighthouse quietly very funny like this movie like quietly i think has a lot of jokes Mm. a couple of them are shocking but most of them i think are funny and i think they're like all intentional and i feel like people are maybe sometimes put off by the vibe but like I think, I don't know, I just think it's funny. (laughs) I think he is making jokes here. Watching Alex's side of the game slowly get less and less team members and slowly become more and more tired. And watching the little kid watching them get more and more angry that his team is losing. Yeah. To that end, and to Mm -hmm. the unlocking of this movie, for me, where this movie opens up is when that kid first appears. Okay. Because it humanizes Fjornir, like before he's just classic villain, you know, he's evil, he's evil stepdad villain, totally through and through. And his firstborn son is a total dick and Mm -hmm. we hate him. So like that totally checks out. But this kid, we kind of like, he's kind of sassy. He's very smart, obviously. Um, he's a little put out about having to do what he considers slave work as the son of the chieftain, mm-hmm. which at first, as you say, wait, it's a very funny thing for him to say. It's shocking because we're like, holy shit, that does not line up with any modern worldview whatsoever. Right, right. But it is like 
given his set of given circumstances, it's a completely reasonable thing for him to be pissed about. You know, he's like, what, what is this dad? Like, come on. Yeah. There's several moments where he, where like the son, the youngest son is the one telling the dad, like, this is what we need to do. We need this many people. Mom needs two more people, you know, like all that sort of stuff. And I think that's really interesting. And I think Alexander saving or Amath saving him Mm -hmm. is the moment where the uncertainty starts to creep in about the revenge too. Yeah. Seeing Fjornir with gray hair and like down on his luck and just like with two sons and his wife and like a small farm Mm -hmm. as they get terrorized. I mean, I feel like this movie really kind of flips the sympathy on you about halfway through because you're like, wait, this isn't that guy killed one dude and all of these people have killed so many people. So right. like, how can we, how can we say who of these people is like more or less deserving of mm. redemption or, you know, life? They do kill a lot of the village at the beginning, yeah. which I was a little confused about why that happens because it seems like he just goes on ruling the same village. So especially cause you see mostly women rather than like the soldiers of Ethan Hawke or whatever. Hmm. But yeah, I really had that thought too. And especially like when I saw the kingdom at the beginning, I was like, this guy is the king, but he's the king of what? Like this village? Like he's the king of like 300 people, you know? Like what does that mean? And then when you see them later, you're like, oh, now the uncle is the king of like 45 people. Yeah. On this like abandoned continent. Like Mm -hmm. what does that even mean? Yeah. But he's still, I guess, in things enough that a group of Vikings like are sending him slaves as some sort yeah. of preferential. He's a part of things still, but mm-hmm. along with that sort of creeping doubt comes the Nicole Kidman scene, which we should talk about Yeah, yeah, yeah. where she sort of reveals, you know, that she was a slave, not a Royal born mm-hmm. that the King, I don't know if they say whether or not there was even a consensual relationship with the King. Yeah, they say it is explicitly said that she, that he was, she says, you were forced on me by your father and okay. Connor was accepted with love. Right. And then he married her and then uh, and then she begged the uncle to kill the king and the son. Yeah, both of them. And then she makes the flip when Alex says that he is going to kill the uncle mm-hmm. and fulfill his revenge. She says, then I will be your queen and starts making out with him. Yes. Which is there in Hamlet. <laughs> Which is, like, fully just going balls to the wall with, like, a theme that is sort of there in the subtext of Hamlet. Yeah. Or that many people interpret in Hamlet. Yes. In the very intimate scenes between a 30-year-old son and his mother in Hamlet. I mean, also, we should say in classic Hollywood fashion that Nicole Kidman is eight years older than Alexander Skarsgård. So it's it's a little bit different (laughs) watching it visually. But like that also, I think, casts into doubt like what the right thing to do in all of this is. Yeah. Well, and she is using that, it seems like, to distract him long enough to get a hold of the sword and kill him is what it plays as maybe... I think she is using it. I don't think that she is like has the hots for her son, but I think it is clear that she will like do what it takes to stay in power. Yeah. Like the fact that she has remained in power behind the scenes for this long is no accident. Right. Right. Playing her options to continue doing that in that scene. Also interesting 
it is his daughter, his unborn daughter, that will become king. A maiden king is what's said. Oh, okay. You see, there's two children. There's a son and a daughter. Uh-huh. And it's the daughter who's wearing the crown and scepter at the end in, in these tree visions. And I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's referencing something that actually happened. I mean, and that reminds me of the whole Macbeth thing and like the fleance, like the procession of the crown, like the nine fleances that lead down to James the first and all that right. stuff in the weird hallucination scene in Macbeth. Yeah, that also reminds me of the Green Knight, the whole post-courted scene in the Green Knight. How do you feel along with that about the moment where he has the declaration, like, I would not kill a woman, uh-huh. saying why he didn't kill his mother, but then he ends up killing her anyway. That was really interesting. Annette Fulnier tells him, you're just like your father, evil begets evil. Yeah. The villain of the story telling the hero, you're evil, your father is evil, evil begets evil. Well, and not only evil begets evil, as in the father is evil, so the son is evil, but the evil perpetrated in the father's name Mm. is the evil that was begotten. So it's like this whole thing. And it's, of course, but it was Fjörner's evil that begot it because he was the one who killed the dad. So it's like it, it goes back into this whole cycle. And at the very beginning, there's reference made to Ethan Hawke's granddad who had to kill his uncle to take uh the throne. Yeah. And so it's like, again, it's just this cycle. I mean, uh, one of the really chilling images um, from this excellent book called Shakespeare, Our Contemporary, is the grand revolving staircase of history, which is a bunch of it's a, a long line of kings who get up, you know, like you're on your way up. And when you get to the top, the only thing that can happen to you is to be pushed off by the king behind you and mm. killed, you know, and like that is the story of all of Shakespeare's history plays. Um, And most of his tragedies is about the succession of kings killing kings Mm -hmm. or people killing kings to become kings. On the other side, like there is all this stuff about Fulnir being a father and being a part of a happy family Mm -hmm. and how that makes us feel. But then he is still like trying to sleep with Olga in the middle of the night, something that his oldest son at least knows about. It's Mm -hmm. less clear if Nicole Kidman knows about that Mm -hmm. until Olga says it. And that's also because she looks like Olga, like has Mm -hmm. the same long blonde hair that Olga does. So then it's not like Fulnir is perfect by our modern moral standards because none of these characters (laughs) are. (laughs) Well, yeah, exactly. I really love the Nicole Kidman scene. Mm -hmm. I I think that she is tapping into her Paddington energy a little bit in that scene uh, in playing like super villain (laughs) ramped up to 11. But I also really love that you can tell in that scene and then later with Anya and Alex's performance that he is like, like he stopped as a 10 year old boy, you know, Uh, uh like he has been a 10 year old boy for 30 years. Yeah. And even though he has been murdering people and at least surrounded by like a found family of people who are constantly raping everyone and selling them as mm-hmm. slaves, we don't see him doing any of that. He could be, you know? Yeah. It makes it clear that he has had no connection, like not just a relationship, but like no connection at all with any other person. I mean, it is heartbreaking when he says, I have never felt close to anyone. Yeah. Okay. I often think that love scenes in high fantasy are wildly overwritten and terrible. Hmm. And I think that their romance in this movie is like one of the best things about it. Oh yeah. I think that it works. And I think like the simplicity of it, 
like the understatement of it, like brought together by necessity. It really, really works for me. Yeah, it really does for me too. And that's part of why I love the scene where they just leave it behind and gallop through Iceland and get on the boat and are going to go off together. Like all of that stuff feels so tender. And, and when he finds her in the forest, like it is a really compelling sort of simmering romance the mm-hmm. whole time, which is part of like the epic mythic sort of yeah. quality of this movie that I really love. Yeah, I also think that she is really good. In- mm-hmm. I've never seen her be bad in anything. Except New Mutants. <laughs> Except. I was deciding whether or not I should say that. <laughs> but she's almost always good. <laughs> but I think she is really good here. And I think it's a very different sort of character from her. And yet she is still like fully dedicated to it, you know? Mm-hmm. I think there is something sort of innately about how she looks on screen that comes across as very high class. Mm-hmm. Maybe her best performance before this is in Thoroughbreds, where she's like rich. Oh, uh, right. Connecticut girl. Um, you know, she's voicing Princess Peach in the Mario movie. Oh. And I feel like there is a temptation to like always see her as that. Uh-huh. But I think that this like playing against type totally works and like, the, all of the scenes of her praying or cursing or attacking people, just atta- yeah. just straight up pretending something else is happening so that <laughs> then she can attack somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the very first thing we see her do is like pretend like she's sick or something and then leap out and swing, like stab at a guy. To save a little kid who looks a lot like Amlet does as a little kid, you know, yeah. I'm sure no coincidence there. I guess it's no surprise from The Witch, but I do want to say, like, really good child performances in this. Yes. Hegros gets out of the little Amlet and of the... Connor. Yeah. I think. Okay, well, along with performances, let's do MVP, and then we we can talk about something we haven't talked about yet either. I'm going to say most valuable player, other than the protagonist, I'm going to take both Alex and Anya off of the board, Mm -hmm. since we have already talked about them a lot. Other than those, who is your MVP of the Northmen? I think Fjörner. Mm-hmm. I think he's giving, especially in the second half of this movie, is giving a really interestingly layered performance. Yeah. And like I said, like it wouldn't work so much if you don't feel a little bit of sympathy for him. Like the discomfort that you're feeling throughout the the later chunk of the movie has a lot to do with the fact that he is playing a much more likable person in many ways than mm-hmm. than Alex is. He's playing peak tired dad energy. Yeah, when he like slaps his older son and is like, "You have to like, I know this is horrible, but you have to like be a chieftain now." And like all of that stuff where he's playing, where he like doesn't want an uprising. He's scared, but he can't show it, and all of that stuff. Yeah is really good when the oldest son is dead yeah and like when he's just like screaming at the funeral yeah and even in the very last scene i mean the way he plays first of all his reaction to seeing his wife and son killed yeah you know that moment is so tense and then when he puts away the sword and then just tells him i'm going to kill you (laughs) meet me here yeah interesting who's your mvp I I think I will give it to the actor Gustav Lind, who plays Thorier, the eldest son. Oh, he was going to be my second choice. So good. Yeah, yeah, I really liked him. He, I think, just stands out because he is so clean. Uh-huh. 
and like so pretty and so sort of rich and snobbish in a movie where everyone else is like caked in dirt. And I think he just totally plays that part so well. And it has a lot to do like quietly in the background of a lot of scenes. Uh, you love to hate him. You love the first moment where he punches <laughs> Alexander Skarsgård like to show his superiority. Clearly it has no effect whatsoever on Alex and he just plays it off <laughs> and acts like nothing happened. <laughs> he is so good and I really like that. That kind of feels to me like the part... Like, if Robert Pattinson had been available for this, that's probably where he would have played. Actually, I believe that I read that that was going to be Bill Skarsgård. Oh, Alex's younger brother. um, And then he had to film something at the same time. So they recast. But I really like the new guy. Is Bill Skarsgård Pennywise? Yes. So I really liked him. But also, I mean, loved Nicole Kidman, loved Fulnier, the leads... I loved Ethan Hawke. I think the stuff that Ethan Hawke is doing at the beginning of this movie, especially mm-hmm. in his entry, like in that first scene of the entry and like the tension in that scene where he is like looking at his wife, he's looking at his son, he's looking at his brother. He like, yeah, I think that, that he's playing all of that very well. He manages to give a warm Viking King performance while still being utterly convincing as a Viking King. I like it. Big year for Ethan Hawke. He's in this and Moon Knight right now. and he's about to be in the black phone he's oh my god okay yes which oh my that preview (laughs) was the scariest thing i saw the preview (laughs) for the preview for that and for nope i mean i was like freaking out because i don't think i'd seen the nope trailer in theaters yet Mm. and i was just living for it and there's so many more details that you notice when you can get to see it on the big screen like that i mean horrifying i cannot (laughs) wait yeah yeah i saw the no trailer too that was so cool and i'm reading that ethan hogg is going to be in knives out too later oh, this wow. year as well so big year for ethan hogg good for him who i agree is very good in this movie did you catch uh both of the parents from the witch have little tiny cameos in this i thought that i saw the mom i definitely recognized the dad as the captain of the boat i love he's that. really he's very fun in that scene yeah also in that scene where Alex is like, I have friends in this country. And also, if you sell this, you'll get a lot of money. I was like, where were these friends before? Where was any of yeah, this? Exactly. <laughs> I was like, you have friends? Convenient luxury life that he could have been living. Yeah. I guess he's so like self-possessed that he's not thinking about that. But still, the mom is the like head of the tapestry room oh uh-huh. when they bring those in she's just like ordering them around for like okay. a couple lines okay so obviously next episode is going to be ranking all of these ranking where this would sit in our eggers ranking where would this sit in your lion king ranking <laughs> wow <laughs> wow it's hard I'm committing to the bit <laughs> okay Okay, you've asked me a terrible question, and I'm probably going to give you a terrible answer. Can you remember the movies that are in the Lion King series? I can. At the bottom of the barrel, it's going to be Lion King, the live-action remake. Yeah. Slightly above that, it's going to be Lion King 2. Mm-hmm. Then it gets tricky. <laughs> Then I think it's Lion King, Black is King, The Northmen, <laughs> Lion King one and a half, baby. 
<laughs> Greatest movie <laughs> ever made. Deranged ranking. Um, but I do kind of see it. Yes, I think I went two, then 2019. Uh-huh. Then I agree it gets tricky. I think I would go Northmen, one and a half, Black is King, original line. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. I think so. I don't know. It would go back and forth with this and one and a half, over which I prefer. You know you know how like Black is King is more of a vibe than a movie? Yeah, sure. I also feel at times that this is more of a vibe than a movie. <laughs> yeah. And they are similar in that way. And I would much rather watch Black is King again. Like, if you're like, hey, what do you want to throw on? You want to throw on Black is King or the Northmen? Like, come on. Easy, easy choice. I would much, much rather watch tons of beautiful people dance to Beyonce music <laughs> than this than this again. But but I do think this is like a huge swing. Uh, and I just love Lion King one and a half. I do think the mythic epic qualities of this film uh-huh. sort of set it up for rewatching in a way that neither of the Edgar movies do. Like you got to be in a real specific vibe to be like, I want to watch the witch again. Yes. In this moment, you know, yes. but I could see this getting thrown on a little bit more in the way you might throw on Dune or yeah, Lord, of the, Lord of the Rings just in, yeah. in more specific company. Probably. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. To the Lion King connection, I mean, there is so much Lion King in here. Down yes. to the fact that they like the final fight is in a river of lava. Yeah. You know, I think that it's like raining fire in the final fight in the Lion King. It is. And I mean, like, Fjornir looks like Scar. True. He has the same hair style as Scar. He's got the same, like, suaver younger brother thing going on. It is basically that this movie does. The first 75 minutes of The Lion King in its first 30 minutes. Uh Uh-huh. And truly, like, every single beat. Like, it is every single beat. Like, you see him as the young kid. You see him learning the thing from his father. Mm -hmm. You see the father get killed from his eyes. He runs away. Mm -hmm. He's raised by Vikings instead of by Timon and Pumbaa. But you've got Bjork, like, literally doing the, like, Mufasa in the sky. Like, remember. 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 You know? Yeah, yeah. And then eventually he is taken by the love interest back to Um, his homeland. Mm -hmm. And then basically there's like 90 minutes of other complications. Right. That this movie is introducing. And then like the last five minutes of this are the last 10 minutes of The Lion King. Yeah. Down in some ways to his daughter being crowned king at the end. Exactly. Exactly. It's like. Oh, we're going to lift up this, the next child's. Interesting. 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 Okay. Any final thoughts on the North man? I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit on our ranking, but anything else you want to mention here? This is not an easy movie. (laughs) Yeah. It is a movie that I'm sure will be like, I will be living rent free in my head for quite a while. I it's, I mean, like it's hard to describe just how disturbing all of the otherness of the past is in this film. I keep coming back to it, but I think that is like what keeps, mm-hmm. keeps you keep just like running into it. It defies you to be able to, to judge it on. You have to come to it on its own terms. I, I feel it almost as a cautionary tale uh, hmm. about like, you see him make the wrong choice or the choice that we would rather he didn't make. 
yeah. and you see why he makes it and you understand, but you can't, I don't think the movie would be better, but I would much rather that he lived happily ever after with Anya and his two children, you know? Yeah. It's unrelenting and unyielding, which I think is a quality that is consistent across all three of those films. Unrelenting, unyielding. You have to leave your preconceived notions at the door to interact with this movie the way that it wants you to. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts on your end? Uh, Not a lot that I haven't already talked about. I just think that it is really cool to see a Robert Eggers movie that has get hype moments. You know, like... (laughs) Like that awesome master sword fight or like the moment when he's on the edge of the boat and the music is swelling and he Mm -hmm. jumps off and Mm -hmm. Anya does the prayer. Like stuff like that, like moments that I will think about, I'd want to rewatch again in the Mm -hmm. same way. You want to rewatch Jason Momoa at the end of Dune Mm -hmm. going into that into that chamber. Mm. I think Alex Skarsgård is doing really great work here and kind of thankless work in some ways. You know, like when you're going like beast mode, like super macho, there's only that's a very limited tool set. I feel like you have at your disposal. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he manages to like keep finding new ways to do things with it down to like the very last final scene when he unlocks even more rage than you have seen is pretty wild. There's one shot where he... And you see it all in one shot where he, like, is trying to get a dog who is barking at him to be quiet. And he goes, like, from human into the beast yeah. <laughs> to growl at the dog and shut the dog up and then becomes human again. It is intense. Okay, now it is time for our quiz game. This week, we're not playing Bums the Word. We are playing Which Scars Guard Is It? Uh-oh. <laughs> okay. Uh, This was a quiz I had... A fun time preparing. So the Skarsgård family is a famous acting family. Mm-hmm. You've got the father, Stellan, mm-hmm. who is 70 years old. I've picked a choice performance here that I'll give you for free to help everyone cast their minds on who we're talking about. Mm-hmm. So Stellan Skarsgård, he's the other dad in Mamma Mia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's not the two you know. After he's you the know. third one. He is the third dad in Mamma Mia. And he is father to five sons, three of which are actors. You've got Alex, who is the oldest, who is the lead in this movie, in The Northman. That is Alex. There's Gustav, who's actually not going to be on this quiz because he pretty much only does TV work. Okay. But he is in Westworld and he's in Vikings. A little connection there. And then there is Bill, who is 31. He's... 14 years younger than Alex. Wow. And he plays, as you said, Pennywise and It. Okay. And then there are two other sons. So we've got Stellan, Alex, and Bill. Now, to further complicate things, I have thrown in Peter Sarsgaard, the husband of Maggie Gyllenhaal, another major actor who we just saw playing the DA in The Batman. Oh, okay. Catwoman okay. is flirting with him and then he has the bomb. Yeah, yeah. He's the guy who the, has the, the bomb, bomb. The bomb collar. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That has to solve the riddles. That is Peter Sarsgaard, who is entirely unrelated to the Sarsgaards, but is frequently lumped in with them. I can kind of see it. He's kind of got a similar eye shape. He's got like these big, scary looking eyes like they do. Like yeah. all three of these guys do. Yeah. So I can see it. I think most people just see the name and think Sarsgaard, but it's not. <laughs> I'm going to give you a movie and a character, and you're going to have to tell me if it was Stellan, 
Alex, Bill, or Peter who played them. Okay, okay. <laughs> I can refresh you. Now, these are mostly movies we have talked about in one form or another on the podcast. Oh, cool. Or movies I think you've seen. So, okay. we're going to start pretty easy with two we've covered on the podcast. The, uh, first up, the movie Dune from 2021. The character is Baron Vladimir Harkonnen. That would be, of course, Stellan Skarsgård. Correct. That is Stellan Skarsgård. Second, the film is Deadpool 2 from 2018. The character is Zeitgeist. Now, <laughs> refresh my memory as to which one Zeitgeist is. If you, I, could, if you... <laughs> I could not remember, but I think he is one of like the team. The X-Force. Yes, the X-Force they assemble who are short-lived. I'm going to go with Bill. That is correct. You've done it. You're two for two. Next up, the movie is last year's The Lost Daughter. The character is Professor Hardy. Now, I did not see The Last Daughter, but I'm going to say that it was Peter Sarsgaard. That is correct. The husband of director Maggie Gyllenhaal. Oh, that should have been the tell, but... It's very funny because he plays basically just like a sexy guy. Mm-hmm. who, like, tempts the main character away from her husband. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's his role in the movie. And, of course, it, he is the husband of the director. That's fun. Uh, next up, the movie is Thor. Kenneth Branagh's Thor from 2011. The character is Eric Selvig. That is also going to be Stellan Skarsgård, I think. You are correct. Next up, last year's Godzilla versus Kong. Oh! <laughs> Now, of course, the very memorable character, Nathan Lind. Who among us could forget Nathan Lind's role in Godzilla vs. Kong? I think it is Alex Skarsgård. You are correct. You are correct. That is old Alex. Okay, next up. 2020's The Devil All the Time. Oh, whoa. Playing the role of Willard Russell. That's Bill Skarsgård. That is correct. Bill Skarsgård, Tom Holland's father in that movie. Oh, you're doing pretty good here. You might... We'll see. We'll see. You might go undefeated. This next one I think you've got to. 2007's Pirates of the Caribbean, Dead Man's Chest, who plays bootstrap Bill Turner. (gasps) I had no idea, but it has got to be Stellan. It is. That is so, of course, that's why I love that character, because you've got (laughs) the best actor in the entire series. Uh, Wow. Okay. Those movies are stacked. Those movies are stacked acting wise. Yeah. Johnny Depp is hit or miss acting wise in general, but he's good in those movies. You got Kira Knightley giving everything. You've got Stellan Skarsgård. You've got Jeffrey Rush always killing it. You have mm. Bill Nye as the Lisa. tentacle dude. It, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, oh, the the horrible guy, the little the the short guy that's like the commander in the third movie. Excellent actor who mm. who you would recognize is in a lot of stuff too. Hmm. Just the best. I think we need to do it sometime soon. Okay. Um, well, certainly another stacked cast. 2011's Green Lantern, <laughs> who is playing the role of Dr. Hector Hammond. I'm going to say it's probably Stellan Skarsgård, but I'm not sure. 
Incorrect. Ooh. Your first miss, that is Peter Sarsgaard. Oh. Playing Dr. Hector Hammond. The movie also stars, of course, Ryan Reynolds and Taika Waititi. No kidding. Maybe his first Hollywood thing. A very young acting performance by Taika. 2014's The Giver. The character is Jonas's father. A character who is second build despite not having a name. I'm going to go with Alexander Skarsgård on this one. It seems age-wise the correct choice. You're correct. You are correct. That is Alex. Okay, we've only got two more. Personal favorite of mine. I think you enjoy this movie too. Atomic Blonde Mm. from 2017. The character of Merkel. I believe that's Bill (laughs) Skarsgård. Yes, that is correct. I think when you hear a name like Merkel, yeah, you kind of know like, which one is. Yeah, you know it. which one is that is. Yeah, <laughs> you know the vibes. Okay, now we have saved the best for last. The year is 2012. The film is Battleship. The character is Commander Stone Hopper. Oh, uh, I think that's got to be Peter Sarsgaard. <clears throat> Incorrect. Oof. That is our boy Alex. Oh wow. Alex playing Commander Stonehopper. Well, very good, Emmett. Nine out of 11 times you knew which Skarsgård it is. So well done. Thank you. That was a very fun one. I I loved that kind of quiz. And you know what's cool about these Skarsgårds is that they are all excellent actors, but they're all such a different vibe. True. Like none of these guys and like all of those roles... Yeah, it is. It, it does. It's like such a such a different, you know, if it's like a weird kind of creepy guy, that's definitely going to be Bill. Mm-hmm. If it's like a scary, like dominating patriarch, it's going to be Stellan. And if it's the third thing, it's going to be Alex. <laughs> well, Alex is also Tarzan in The Legend of Tarzan. Like he oh. plays a lot of these sort of like strong men. Mm-hmm. you know S- strong macho hero types commander stonehopper types yeah, yeah basically but i do have to say when i saw him in person it was like the, someone should just cast this guy as a dad mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. obviously he is super ripped and handsome but like mm-hmm. they should also just cast him in regular dramas because i feel like you could probably do it really well yeah and there, there's less of an expiration date on that than there is on playing tarzan you know for sure well, well done. Today, we don't have a guest to plug their information. So I have brought a plug, something that I would advise our listeners to check out. Uh, this is from friend of the show, Erica Miranda, not a past guest, although I would love for her to be a future guest. She produced a short film, which is called Mi Casa. It is on HBO Max. No way. It's a little 14 minute short. Uh, it's sort of a charming ghost story. It's not like a horror movie or anything, but it's about these two ghost sisters who are stuck in a house that a new man has just moved into. Mm. And I really enjoyed it. And I would tell everyone, if you've got HBO Max, to go check it out on your lunch break or uh, when you're too tired to watch an episode of a TV show, but want to watch something as I watched it. That's super cool. I would also like to plug something. Mm-hmm. which is Mended Wing Theater Company, my theater company, going on our fifth season of touring this Ooh. May. 
We've got 15 venues all across North Carolina. Um, we're starting in Winston-Salem, where we are. We will also be rehearsing at the School of the Arts. And then we're finishing in my hometown of Ocracoke Island, which will be the first time that a full-length Shakespeare play has been performed on the island since Wade and I did Romeo and Juliet back in 2013. Wow. Can you believe it? Um, wow. So if you would like to find out more about the tour or... Um, I mean, God willing, support us on the GoFundMe. Please uh, look us up at www.mendedwingtheater.com. Wonderful. Very exciting. Very exciting. And we will maybe talk a little bit about that too. When next we meet, which will be this Friday to rank these Eggers movies and reveal our next miniseries, which we are very excited for and very excited that in a mere 13 weeks, we're going to finally be watching Jordan Peele's Nope. (laughs) The year of Nope continues. (laughs) Oh my God. All kinds of exciting things coming down the pipeline. Mm -hmm. That being said... Just like old Fjornir's tips, stay frosted, baby. <laughs> Cinema Bumps is a production of DKG Podcasts. It is created and produced by Emma Temple and me, Wade Lawrence Holloman. I also edit and mix the podcast. Our theme music is by Zane Holloman, who you can find on Bandcamp, and our show art is by Autumn Beckner. Our social media is managed by Laura Bennett. If you like what you hear, please tell all your friends and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, the two best ways to spread the word about our work. You can also follow us on Instagram at cinemabums or email us at cinemabumspod at gmail.com. Don't flake on us. We'll be back next week 